Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Membership fees apply after free trial. Cancel any time. Guys, are you trying to stay in 20-year-old shape into your 30s and 40s and finding it, well, impossible? Then you need to listen to this. Beachbody, the company that revolutionized getting ripped at home with P90X and Insanity, has a brand new program just for you called Lift 4. It's part lift. It's part hit. With total body shredding results in just 30 to 40 minutes a day, right at home on the Beachbody On Demand app. That's how you get killer results as an adult. Go to Beachbody.com to sign up now and you can try Live 4 for free. That's Beachbody.com. It was a chilly November morning in 1949 when a 70-year-old Arizona mining prospector named James Kidd left the $4-a-week shack he rented and was never seen again. This isn't the story of where Kidd disappeared to, because the truth is, we don't know and almost certainly never will. Kidd had spent much of his adult life living as a recluse, and he stepped out of this world just as enigmatically as he'd lived in it. The mystery of Kidd's life proved to be a major problem for those tasked with tidying up the man's affairs. For starters, it took several weeks before anyone even noticed he was missing. And then it took several more years after that for him to be declared legally dead. Following this declaration, an Arizona estate tax commissioner named Geraldine Swift ended up getting Kidd's file dropped on her desk. It seemed like a routine case at first. That is, until Swift began doing some digging into Kidd's background and realized, along with being a prospector and someone who had spent his adult life forming no close personal ties to anyone, the man also turned out to be a prudent investor in the stock market. When Kidd vanished, he left behind a stock portfolio that totaled just a little over $174,000. A decent chunk of change today that was worth considerably more back in the 1960s. Swift's investigation would lead her to a safe deposit box belonging to Kidd in the First National Bank of Phoenix. Inside, she found a few worthless papers and what may be the only known photograph of Kidd himself. But then Swift also came across a yellowed scrap of paper that turned out to be Kidd's handwritten last will and testament. A will that would open up a can of worms unlike any other in legal history. It read, This is my first and only will and is dated the 2nd of January, 1946. I have no heirs, and have not married in my life, and after all my funeral expenses have been paid, and $100 to some preacher of the gospel to say farewell at my grave, sell all my property, which is all in cash and stocks with E.F. Hutton Company, Phoenix, some in safe deposit box, and have this balance money go in a research or some scientific proof of a soul of the human body which leaves at death. I think in time there can be a photograph of soul leaving the human at death. James Kidd. It wasn't long after that when people began scrambling to get their hands on Kidd's money. Some of Kidd's living relatives tried having the will declared invalid, but the court upheld it as legally binding. 
1967, probate court judge Robert L. Myers heard 133 petitions from various individuals, many of whom made some rather outlandish claims in an attempt to prove the soul exists. The media began referring to it as the ghost trial of the century. Ultimately, Myers awarded Kidd's estate to the Barrow Neurological Institute of Phoenix, stating that they were the best equipped to carry out the research as described in Kidd's will. Later on, though, the case was appealed and the bulk of the estate ended up going to the American Society for Psychical Research, who used some of the money to finance research into people who claimed to witness evidence of the soul leaving the body at the time of death. The one thing no one, not the ASPR, nor any of the people who came forward during the trial, was ever able to do, was produce the one piece of evidence James Kidd specifically stipulated in his will. A genuine photograph of the soul leaving a human body at the time of death. One thing that often occurs with any new technology is that there are those who immediately fear it. This was certainly the case with photography, From the early days of photography, it was referred to as the black art. This was ostensibly because of the dark silver nitrate stains left on a photographer's hands. But some say this nickname also came about because of those who believed it to be a type of black magic and sorcery. It's for these same sort of reasons that some Native American tribes refused to have their photos taken, out of their belief that the photo would steal a bit of their souls. When you think about it, photography and death go hand in hand. One particularly morbid thought you may never have considered is that every single photograph ever taken has captured an image of someone who is, or will eventually, become dead. The invention of the first daguerreotype photographs during the 19th century helped bridge a gap in human experience. Namely, how do you preserve the memory of a person long after they died? Sure, before there was photography, you could hire an artist to paint a portrait or draw a picture. But that still wasn't quite the same as having a photograph that perfectly captured what someone looked like. That's why one of the earliest uses for photography actually became taking pictures of dead loved ones. For a time during the 1800s, it became a common practice for a family to gather together with the body of their loved one before burial and take one final family portrait together. One community that readily embraced photography during its early days throughout the mid to late 19th century was the spiritualist movement. These ardent believers in ghosts in the afterlife came to see photography as another tool in their arsenal to prove to the rest of the world that the things they believed were real. In the aftermath of the Civil War, during which nearly three-quarters of a million people were killed, the American public became obsessed with the possibility of trying to keep the memories of their dead loved ones alive. Both spiritualism and photography helped fill in those gaps. This all led to a time during the 1860s when a Boston photographer began offering his services to provide something even better to his customers than the standard photograph of them huddled around the dead body of their loved one. This particular photographer promised to give you a picture with their actual ghost. I'm Nate Hale and all my selfies are classified by the men in black. And this is The Conspirators. They say that the eyes are the windows to the soul. 
During the 1830s, there were a few people who believed this more than Louis Daguerre. The French artist and printmaker who invented a process for fixing images on silver-plated sheets of copper. The printmaker hoped to use his daguerreotype process to create a whole new form of portraiture. One that not only preserved a person's likeness forever, but also opened up the ability to have such keepsakes purchased by the general public, not just the wealthy elite. The problem was the eyes. Specifically, that they blinked. Daguerre's process might take 20 minutes or more of exposure, during which time the subject had to remain perfectly still. If they even blinked a little during that time, it could blur out the eyes entirely. For that reason alone, I think you can probably understand why some early photographers liked taking pictures of corpses. They were, after all, pretty unlikely to blink and mess up the picture. Over time, other inventors would find ways to shorten that exposure window and develop new techniques to capture perfect portraits of the living. But photographing the dead remained a problem, sometimes for quite the opposite reason. Although the dearly departed never blinked, they also never opened their eyes on command either. Some photographers remedied the situation by doctoring the negatives to paint eyes on the subject. Another photographer took things a step further and actually used real paint to draw, shall we say, not too realistic eyes on the eyelids of the deceased. Still another tried to create a natural look by using a teaspoon to dig in and force the eyelids open, then turn the eyeballs toward the camera. But not every photographer kept their camera lenses focused on portraiture, or the dead for that matter. One photographer who took his work to quite literal new heights was a respected Boston image maker named James Wallace Black, who in October 1860 managed to do something never done before when he took his camera up in a hot air balloon over the city and captured the very first aerial photograph in American history. Prior to this momentous occasion, most photographers felt they were limited to the work they could capture in the comfort of their salons. But Black's amazing aerial photograph showed the world that the camera could be used to capture a vast world beyond what was thought possible. Two years later, James Wallace Black began to hear about a fellow Boston photographer named William Mumler, who claimed to pierce yet another veil into a world never seen before. This man claimed to be able to create a portrait of a person that included the ghostly image of a deceased loved one. Mumler was an amateur chemist and silver engraver who stumbled onto his new skill quite by accident. For a time, he made a decent living working at Bigelow Brothers in Canard, one of Boston's most prominent silver engraving shops. But he eventually left that firm and started his own engraving shop just a few blocks away. It was here that he met a young woman named Hannah Green Stewart, who ran her own photography studio just a few doors down. Mumler was instantly captivated both by Hannah herself as well as her photography business. So in 1861, Mumler decided to learn the craft for himself. One day when he was alone in Hannah's studio practicing taking self-portraits, he was startled to see another figure standing next to him in one of his photographs. It was the translucent image of a young girl standing next to him, whom he later identified as his deceased cousin. That's the story he told later on, at least. In truth, we don't know the series of steps leading up to the creation of William Mumler's first ghost photograph. Whether it was a simple accident involving an inexperienced photographer learning the ropes a deliberate hoax, or even a genuine photograph of a ghost. What we do know is that Mumler's future wife Hannah Stewart would help steer him toward 
what he would do next with his strange photograph. Anna, you see, was a spiritualist, and it's through her that Mumler became introduced to the spiritualist community. Mumler showed the photograph he had taken to a noted leader in the spiritualist movement, H.F. Gardner, and he was immediately impressed by the image. Gardner just so happened to be the man who a few years earlier helped turn the Fox sisters into a household name throughout the spiritualist community. And he became just as determined to promote this remarkable young photographer who had somehow captured an authentic picture of a ghost. Gardner shared the photo among members of the spiritualist community and soon the story appeared in a spiritualist magazine, followed by the spiritualist newspaper The Banner of Light. From there, Mumler's story went the 1860s equivalent of going viral, and soon he had people lining up outside Hannah's tiny Boston studio willing to pay the princely sum of $10 apiece for a photo with the image of their dearly departed. Business grew so successful for William and Hannah that they soon married. When clients entered the Washington Street studio, they were greeted by Hannah, who offered her services as a clairvoyant. She would sit with the client and talk about the spirits they hoped to see. Then she would convey this information to her husband, who was happy to oblige. Mumler himself never claimed to have any psychic abilities. Nor did he absolutely promise to his clients that they would actually get a picture with a ghost. Mumler told everyone he was just as astonished as anyone else why the spirits had chosen him to be their conduit to the living world. He told clients up front he didn't know how to control these gifts, and sometimes they didn't work at all. Ghosts were fickle, he said, and he couldn't control their actions. As a result, sometimes he might produce a photo of someone else other than the ghost they were hoping to see. So if a client was disappointed they didn't get a photograph of the long-dead brother they were hoping to see, and instead got, for example, a picture with an elderly woman, Mumler would help them search their memories to find some long-dead relative a deceased aunt, perhaps, who fit the bill. The fact that photography was still such a new art form worked in Mumler's favor, since there would seldom ever be any other photographs of the aunt in question to compare against and see if it really resembled her. One of Mumler's clients brought one of the man's ghost portraits to J.W. Black and asked him if he could create such an image using modern technology. Black told him he couldn't. Curious, Black sent his assistant Horace Weston to Mumler's studio posing as a regular customer and had him sit for a portrait. Weston was astonished when Mumler produced a photo featuring the spectral image of his dead father standing next to him. Weston was so dumbstruck by what he witnessed that he actually confessed to Mumler right there on the spot that he'd been sent to prove him a fraud. But Weston had been trained by the best in the art of photography and he could see no obvious signs of trickery in anything Mumler had done. Weston went back to his boss and showed him the photograph. J.W. Black was suitably impressed with his assistant's story, so he sent Weston back to Mumler again, this time with an offer of $50 if he'd allow Black to sit for a portrait and allow him to do his own investigation. Surprisingly, Mumler agreed. When Black arrived, Mumler already had his camera set up and ready to go. He offered Black the opportunity to inspect the device however he sought fit. He even told the man he could take it apart if he wanted, but Black didn't think Mumler was mechanically fit enough to have doctored the mechanism himself. Mumler then showed him the glass plate he intended to use and offered to let Black clean it himself. Black held the glass up to the light and breathed on it to ensure there was nothing on it that could have created the ghostly image. 
From that moment on, Black followed Mumler around his studio to make sure that particular plate never left his sight. Mumler coated the plate with the syrupy chemicals that allowed an image to form. He placed the plate inside the camera that instructed Black to sit for his portrait. From there, the picture was taken and Mumler even offered to let Black develop it himself. But Black declined, saying he wouldn't want to ruin the photo since he wasn't familiar with Mumler's darkroom or the particular chemical formulas he used. Black's demeanor soon went from curious to astonished as he watched the image develop before his very eyes. For there, standing with one arm leaning on Black's shoulder, was a man he recognized. It was Black's father. But this was impossible because the man had died when J.W. Black was 13 years old. Black left the studio shaken to his core. He had gone in convinced he'd be able to detect some obvious evidence of fraud by William Mumler. But even when he asked Mumler how much he'd charge for the photograph, Mumler gave it to him for free. Following J.W. Black's revelations, other photographers stepped up trying to debunk William Mumler's work. Among these was another prominent photographer named L.H. Hale, who managed to create a reasonable facsimile of William Mumler's spirit photographs. But the spiritualist newspaper Banner of Light pointed out that Hale was only able to do this by using two negatives and printing one on top of the other. Mumler only used a single negative in his work. Despite the best efforts of many professional debunkers, no one was ever able to come up with a logical explanation exactly how William Mumler was able to produce his remarkable photographs. Although one could only presume that Mumler's experience as an amateur chemist and engraver had allowed him to come up with some technique that allowed him to copy an image from one photographic plate to the next. But just because no one could properly say exactly how Mumler was deceiving the public, it didn't mean he avoided suspicion either. In one instance, Mumler took a photograph of a grieving woman with the ghostly apparition of a brother she had recently lost in the Civil War. This was all fine and dandy until the brother showed up alive and well sometime later. But instead of accusing Mumler of being a fraud, the woman, who was a devout spiritualist, insisted it must have been some sort of evil spirit trying to deceive her. Things became even more awkward for Mumler, though, when a man visited his studio and had his portrait taken only to be surprised to see the spectral image of his wife standing next to him. The problem was, his wife wasn't dead, and she too had visited Mumler's studio for a portrait sitting not long before. Even though no one knew exactly how he was doing it, suspicion immediately began to swirling around Mumler that he had somehow transferred the wife's image from one negative to another. Fellow Bostonian, amateur photographer, and former Chief Justice of the United States Supreme Court, Oliver Wendell Holmes, published an essay in Atlantic Monthly in 1863, in which he gave step-by-step instructions on how to create a double exposure on a negative. While Holmes didn't specifically call out Mumler by name in his essay, he clearly had the man's work in mind while he described how despicable it was to deceive a grieving individual by giving them false hope they might see their lost loved ones again. Holmes described a situation where a grieving mother who recently lost an infant might be deceived by something as simple as a piece of bunched-up fabric that might be mistaken for a baby's face. But Mumler's photographs went well beyond obvious things like tricks of light and shadow on balls of fabric. The photos he produced looked completely human and recognizable, other than the fact you could see through the ghostly figure. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. 
that crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Throughout the 19th century and beyond, more and more ghost photographs were being taken, but most of those images were blurry pictures of spectral shapes that looked like fog. Mumler's photographs were unique in that the spirits he captured looked just like real people. For a time, this only added to the spiritualist central belief that the afterlife existed in a magical place they called Summerland, just a thin membrane of reality from our own. Once more and more people began coming forward calling Mumler a fraud, business began to fall off in Boston. Even several prominent spiritualists who had once vigorously defended the man could no longer do so when some of the so-called ghosts he took pictures of began turning up very much alive and in the flesh. As business fell off and Mumler began to see his reputation being constantly tarnished in the press, he decided to pack up his studio and move to New York City in 1868. He began renting studio space among a cluster of photography studios on Broadway. He quickly set himself apart, though, by becoming the best-known practitioner of spirit photography in the city. But William Mumler's reputation as a potential fraud preceded him. The New York Sun sent Wall Street financier and spiritualist Charles Livermore to Mumler's studio to put his work to the test. Like others before him, Livermore was astounded when the portrait of himself developed before his very eyes, only to show the translucent image of his dead wife standing next to him. Then on March 16, 1869, another customer entered Mumler's studio who identified himself as William Bowditch and asked Mumler if he could get a photo taken with a dead relative. The man paid for his photograph, even though he failed to get a picture with the particular relative he'd been promised. But as soon as money changed hands, that was the moment when the stranger revealed his true identity as New York City Marshal Joseph Tooker. Early that month, a science editor at the World newspaper had approached New York City's mayor, A. Oakley Hall, demanding an investigation into Mumler after a group of professional photographers filed several complaints against the man. Marshal Tooker's officers arrested Mumler on April 12th on charges of swindling people out of their money. You'll probably be as amused as I was to learn that Mumler was incarcerated in New York City's most infamous jail, a structure that was known locally as the Tombs. Newspaper headlines cried out about the stupendous fraud Mumler committed on the city. Many devout spiritualists saw this court case as a direct legal attack on their movement. Members of the spiritualist community packed the courtroom in support of Mumler. At first, the prosecutor, Elbridge T. Jerry, only called Marshall Tooker to the stand to describe his encounter with Mumler before resting his case. He was thoroughly satisfied that this single account was more than enough evidence to secure a conviction in what he expected to be a simple fraud trial. But William Mumler had assembled a crack defense team led by a powerful attorney named John D. Townsend. The defense attorney brought forward a parade of professional photographers and former clients of Mumler, who not only testified that the man's work was genuine, but many of them expressed tremendous gratitude and appreciation of all the good work the man had done. At one point, they even called Judge John Edmonds, a former justice of the New York Supreme Court, to the witness stand. Judge Edmonds shocked everyone when he told the court he could not only see the dead, but that he'd actually communed with them while deliberating some of his trials. He believed Mumler's spirit photographers were the real deal as well. 
This came as a one-two punch when next the defense brought forth to the witness stand a woman named Luthera Reeves, who gave a heart-wrenching testimony that the ghostly little boy in the photograph Mumler had taken was indeed her long-dead son. She said she could prove it was her boy since the child in the photo featured the same telltale curvature of the spine her son had while he was still alive. As this parade of character witnesses came forward, the prosecution began to realize they were on the verge of losing this case if they didn't step up their game. Prosecutor Jerry reopened the case and now began to bring forth his own army of expert witnesses to fight back. They gathered several of their own professional photographers who testified about the many ways in which a photograph could be manipulated to create the ghosts that appeared in Mumler's images. Jerry even called none other than P.T. Barnum as his expert witness in the art of flim-flam and fooling the public. Barnum had recently published a book shredding spiritualism as nothing more than a bunch of con artists out to deceive grief-stricken and gullible people. In that same book, Barnum described how he had purchased a number of spirit photographs from William Mumler to add to his collection of oddities. And at the same time, Mumler had more or less confessed to him the pictures were fakes. But alas, Barnum couldn't back these claims up with any evidence other than his own word. Any record he had of the sale, or even the photographs themselves, had gone up in smoke after a fire destroyed his museum back in 1865. Mumler's defense attorney pounced on Barnum and accused the greatest showman of perpetrating the same sort of fraud his client was accused of on the public. Attorney Townsend pointed out that Barnum routinely sold tickets for people to see such obvious frauds as the Fiji mermaid, which was nothing more than a monkey's head and torso sewed onto a fishtail. Barnum responded by saying the difference was his exhibits were all in good fun, and that he gave people their money's worth many times over. Mumler, he said, was milking grief-stricken people for more money than they could afford. William Mumler took to the witness stand and testified in his own defense, swearing under oath that his photographs were genuine. Although he admitted to not fully understanding exactly how they came to be or why the spirits chose him. During closing arguments, Attorney Townsend spoke for two hours describing Mumler as a modern-day Galileo, whom the public would have hanged had he been alive that day. Prosecutor Jerry responded by giving his own fiery closing statement, describing the immense damage such obvious fraudsters as William Mumler committed on the very fabric of society with their trickery. The judge didn't take long for deliberation. He announced that whereas he was morally convinced William Mumler had practiced fraud and deception, he also felt the prosecution had failed to prove their case beyond a shadow of a doubt. As a result, he ordered the defendant be set free. This middling verdict failed to satisfy anyone on either side of the argument. The professional debunkers couldn't claim victory and say that justice had been served. Nor could the spiritualists who had rushed to William Mumler's defense say the courts had vindicated their cause. Following his release, William Mumler returned to Boston, where he mostly gave up spirit photography. He was deeply in debt from all his legal fees, and he spent his remaining years trying to make back his fortune. He instead focused his efforts on creating a new method of photo development he called the Mumler process. His process really was revolutionary. It allowed the first photographs to be printed on newsprint, changing the practice of journalism forever. Even though he held numerous patents and a number of techniques that helped revolutionize the art of photography, William Mumler still died nearly penniless in 1884. Even today, no one knows for certain how William Mumler managed to create his spirit photographs. 
Whatever secrets he held, he took to the grave. The man destroyed all his negatives shortly before his death, ensuring no one would ever be able to examine them after he was gone. Even though in the years after his release from jail, William Mumler didn't take many more spirit photographs, he still did so on special occasions. And there could probably mean no more a special occasion when in 1871, a diminutive woman showed up at his studio dressed from head to toe in black, as well as wearing a black veil concealing her face. She was quite obviously dressed for mourning, and when Mumler asked the woman her name, she lied. The woman explained to Mumler that she had dealt with mediums before and that she knew how many of them resorted to trickery, and she refused to be fooled by anyone ever again. Her beloved husband had died a few years earlier, she explained, and she had been desperate ever since to contact him beyond the grave. Although she had met with her fair share of spiritualist frauds and hucksters, she truly believed her husband's spirit had appeared to her recently at a seance. She knew of Mumler's reputation, and even despite the trial, she now wanted to capture one last photograph with the man. Mumler assured the woman his photographs were genuine. He went into his darkroom and prepared a plate. When he returned, the woman was seated in front of the camera, but she was still wearing her veil. Mumler asked her if she wanted her photograph taken with the veil on, but she told him as soon as he was ready to take the picture, she would remove it. Years later, Mumler would insist that he had no idea who the woman really was until after her photograph was developed. But, of course, it's certainly possible Mumler knew who she was in advance. She was extremely famous, after all. One story goes that the woman was actually a repeat customer and that she had come to see Mumler a few years earlier to get a photo of herself and her brother who died in the war. Of course, once the veil came off, there could be no question who she was, and more importantly, who her very famous husband was. Any of us would recognize those gaunt, bearded features anywhere. If you need a reminder, you only need to reach for a $5 bill to see for yourself. The woman you see was named Mary Todd, and her husband in the photograph, standing behind her with his hands resting on her shoulders, was none other than President Abraham Lincoln, who had been assassinated just a few years earlier. The Conspirators is written and produced by me, Nate Hale, and Entirely Fictional Identity. Thanks so much for listening. I have some new Patreon supporters to thank. Thank you to Christina, Jason, Eddie, Felipe, and Katie. This is the part of the show where I normally explain all the bonuses you can get by signing up for Patreon, but with the world gone topsy-turvy, I've temporarily turned off billing. Although patrons still get access to all the exclusive content on my Patreon site. Thanks so much to each and every one of you who continues to support our show through this trying time. If you can't sign up for Patreon at this time, one other simple and free way to help support the show is to subscribe, rate, and review us on Apple Podcasts. Each one of your ratings and reviews helps boost us in Apple's charts and spreads the good word to more listeners. If you're not on Apple, not to worry. You can also find us on most of your favorite podcast apps. We also have a website, theconspiratorspodcast.com, where you can hear our entire back catalog of shows. Besides that, you can also find us on social media. We're on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. So feel free to drop us a line or shoot us an email at theconspiratorspodcast at gmail.com and let us know how we're doing. Thanks again for joining us, and I hope you'll be back next time.